Have you seen how a horse on a summer's afternoon in a wide green meadow gallops and dances and springs about in the sun and wind? This is just how God delights in pouring himself into you, just like this. So what I love about that, it's in the, it's in the section of embracing everything, is that I think it takes courage to allow God to do that. Uh, I think I don't usually let God do that, but, and it also has the emotion and the feeling of, if you ever did actually let God do what God wants to do in you, imagine what, the, I mean, and, and that, that must be what heaven is, right? If you like the poetry of Rumi or Hafiz, maybe you don't know that Meister Eckhart, 13th century Christian mystic, wrote with that very same kind of understanding of God. And John Sweeney and Mark Burroughs wrote a book called Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart, in which they take Meister Eckhart's theology and thoughts and sermons, and they translate them into these poems that are just gorgeous. So uh, the podcast opened with John reading one, and wasn't it gorgeous? And so I had a great conversation with John all about Meister Eckhart and mysticism and how it was that he wrote this book. And so I want you to really, really enjoy this one. I did. I hope it's hopeful for you and restful for you. Enjoy. John, it's so great to have you on. Thanks so much for talking about Meister Eckhart and your book. How are you today? I'm good. It's nice to be with you. Now, you're in Milwaukee, yeah? I am in Milwaukee. How is it there? Because we have had the the worst winter imaginable. Probably not. That's probably a very, very overstated thing. But we've had a lot of snow and a lot of cold, and it's been kind of brutal. But it looks like it's turning the corner here in Minneapolis. But how has it been in Milwaukee? I think we've had a lovely winter, actually. Uh, my wife and I are, are the sorts of folks who complain if there's not a decent amount of snow. Yeah. Uh, and last last winter we were complaining. Last winter was our first winter in Milwaukee, and we were complaining we didn't get much snow. Uh, this winter was pretty good. It felt like a nice balance. And now the sun is out. Yeah. I actually have the window a little bit covered here, so that not too much sun will come in and mess up our picture, you know. But it's a very bright, sunny day, and spring is coming, and I think we'll see daffodils soon. And yes. so everything seems to have worked the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> That's <laughs> good, man. Well, I, you know, I, we have the similar day here, bright blue sky and 50s later on this week. So um, I guess my, my complaining days are done. <laughs> I grew up in California, so I, I still am not, and I love Minnesota. I've been here forever, but, you know, I'm still not quite, um, man, winter still does not quite agree with me. Yeah. So. Well, you, you know, I, sp I spent two, two or three winters in Minnesota oh, 25 years ago. I lived uh, near Lake Nokomis. Oh, Yeah. I love Lake Nokomis, South Minneapolis. It's a great spot. Whenever anyone complains about the cold, wherever else I've been, I've ever lived, I've always <laughs> said, "Hey, I remember in in Minneapolis, it would always be at least a full week of negative thirty. Oh yeah, air temperature negative <laughs> yes. sixty, wind chill. So shut up." <laughs> Man, we we had that this year too. We the the kid. I mean, this is for Minnesota. This was bizarre, but the kids were out of school for four days, four straight days because of the cold not because of the snow it was like 29 below 30 below straight so it, i 
yes, we, we, we had a stretch like that this year. Yeah. Uh, okay. I want to ask you just all about Meister Eckhart and your beautiful book, uh, the book of the heart, uh, that you did along with Mark Burroughs, but I guess, uh, just to dive right in, John, and I know you're going to have an answer for this, but as you look at American Christian spirituality these days, Oh boy. Yep. We're going to go there. Just, just give me some observations. You don't, you don't have to give me the full treatise, but, uh, because I, I think part of what I love about the, the poetry and about Meister Eckhart, um, is that it, it is calling us to something that we desperately need. Uh, I don't want to give a leading question too much, but as you look at the state of American Christian spirituality these days, what do you, what do you see? Um, I see people who are trying to find the balance between being appropriately self-interested and inappropriately self-interested. Wow. Say more about that. I love that. Well, there are so many ways in which we need to care for ourselves, right? I mean, this is one of the things I find myself talking a lot about with friends and with colleagues too. Uh, I mean, there are ways in which we need to um, take care of ourselves. We need to manage our emotions. We need to uh, do what's right for us. We need to be honest. We need to be forthright. We need to be clear. Um, so there's all those kinds of things that I and, you know, people I talk with, we have to focus on those things every day. Yeah. And sometimes we're not good at them. I mean, I mean, sometimes we're not good to ourselves physically. You know, we might be good to ourselves uh, uh, emotionally or sort of indulging ourselves when we want to take a break or entertain ourselves or tune out or uh, have an extra beer or whatever, but we might not take care of our bodies. And so, I mean, there's all yeah. these ways in which we have to be caring about ourselves in every way in which self means who we are. But then as Christians, we are always trying to figure out what, where does that stop and where do I care for other people? Yeah. For me, this question becomes an important question for Christian spirituality that's influenced by my relationship to uh, contemporary Judaism as well, because as you might know, I'm married to a Jewish woman. Yep. Uh, she also happens to be a rabbi, so I'm very involved in things that are Jewish uh, in addition to my Christian life. And I see, I see the conflict that I opened up by answering your question in a slightly different way, I think because of my relationship to all of that, which is uh, I increasingly feel like we haven't figured out, we don't yet understand what is, what is the balance between loving God in my armchair mm. and loving God in my community. Mm. Um, some of us are really good at that sort of maybe Cistercian Benedictine uh, sort of mystical contemplative loving God in my place, which I can do by myself in my armchair in the dark in the morning, you know, with my prayer book or mm -hmm. with my rosary beads or just simply in my quiet place. Um, some of us are really good at that and we're terrible at the other. And then the two sides in, you know, Christian spirituality or Christians everywhere, you know, we argue about those two sides. Yeah. Which one is more meaningful? Which one is the true expression of who we are? So it, to me, that's my that's my sort of answer to your big question. Yeah. So, well, and and I love that too, and I love the the connection with um, Jewish spirituality. As I I have been 
mentored by a Jewish rabbi for, gosh, I don't know, eight or nine years. And so I, I kind of think about it like there's the Jewish mind, which is sort of expansive and questions and debate and this and that and, and you know, contemplative and, um, and concern about justice. And maybe it's because, you know, looking at it from the inside, I can critique my own tradition, Christianity more so, and I can appreciate Judaism more. But I do tend to think Christianity tends to want to define it as this or that, as contemplative or um, justice oriented. And I, I think we, we, we seem to always get in that, that uh, cul-de-sac versus saying, well, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's continuum. Maybe I need to explore. Maybe it's both. It definitely is both. And maybe I'm going to be out of balance in one season of my life and I need to tip back over. Um, but I think you said it well. I think we, we have a hard time knowing. Um, well, and, and actually I'm, I'm realizing now that my reference to, to Judaism was incomplete because I didn't say, I didn't finish the thought by saying that most of my Jewish friends and my wife, for instance, you know, are progressive Jews. And when you and you're, when you hang out with progressive Jews, there really isn't loving God in your armchair. Mm. You you can't take the object right. of God, and and it just it doesn't have meaning to love God alone. Right. Just just like it doesn't have meaning in Judaism to it doesn't have certainly the kind of meaning it does for Christians to to read the Bible or study the Bible by yourself. You know, you're supposed to have a minion. So. So, so there's this sense in which it's constantly challenging. So now I'm revealing myself. Yeah. I love that armchair, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I suppose that leads us into Eckhart, too. I mean, I love that armchair. I love that five in the morning in the quiet in the yeah. dark, you know, uh, as I was saying before. That's me. But that's not enough. And, yeah. and, I, and I don't think I have a Christian spirituality, to go back to your initial question, unless I'm doing something other than uh, loving God in yeah, the dark sure. Oh, that's good. Well, let's talk about Meister Eckhart. Uh, first of all, give us a little bit of a background of just the thumbnail sketch of who he was and then how you first got interested in him. Well, he was a German theologian, you know, a medieval German theologian, uh, a Dominican, uh, a, a preacher, a uh, well known for his sermons, also did a lot of uh, commentary on scripture. And he was 13th century, right? Like 13th century born. Uh, I don't think we know when he was born exactly, but usually it's 1260. Yep. Uh, he lived to be, uh, well, 1328. So he lived to be 68. Mm -hmm. uh, in his last decade, he was being accused of heresy quite a bit by Pope John XXII, who plays a little bit of role in my writing and intellectual life as well, because he was the Pope who uh, really laid down the hammer on what were called the spiritual Franciscans, the ones who, because I love Francis of Assisi, the yeah. ones who, the ones who felt that they really were carrying on the true Francis uh, uh, heritage by absolute poverty. He was an Avignon Pope also, so it was during that time of division in the church yep. uh, when the popes were not in Rome. In fact, John the Twenty Second was elected in France. He always stayed in France, uh, never went to Rome. Pretty controversial idea for a and there pope. was there was two po there was two different popes right and at a time like was there a third as well there, and they there were times when there were three yeah there yeah were times when there were three yeah and there were times when there were two and uh, his relationship with the French crown was way too cozy you know yeah. so I yeah. mean it yeah. was and it was also a time when the Dominicans and the Franciscans were uh, 
in, in conflict on a whole host of issues. Yeah. So when Francis went before the Inquisition in Saxony uh, or in Frankfurt, I don't remember which one it was, he was uh, it was a Franciscan led Inquisition and he was a Dominican. And so that played a role. So there was yeah. all this kind of stuff going on. But uh, most of his career was spent either as a professor in Paris, uh, which is where he gets that Meister yep. name, which it's it, that means master sort of essentially. Right. right? Yeah. Right. He was he was only the after Thomas Aquinas, he was the he was the next one to be asked to come to Paris for a second time, which shows you what how his intellect yeah. was regarded. Uh, but other than those two periods of time when he was in Paris, most of his time was spent as a prior of his religious community or as a provincial who was in charge of all of Saxony, which went all the way from Germany up to the Baltic uh, through the Netherlands and Scandinavia. So it was this big region. And he was in charge of about 50 convents. And he was often praying, I'm sorry, not praying, preaching to uh, nuns. And that's yeah. where most of these great sermons were originally delivered. Uh, and we can come back to that. That's part of what uh, got him into a little bit of trouble was he was using uh, his philosophical language often with an, to an audience that people felt uh, this might lead them astray or it might be too subtle or and we can come back to that because that was kind of anti anti woman, I think, at yeah. the time. And in our time, it's sort of anti the rest of us who are more ordinary and not, you know, philosophers. Yeah, well, I, he he fascinates me a little. Well, a lot because um, he he did live in a time of great turmoil in the church where um, there was uh, it was sort of splitting apart and. Um, and there was corruption, right, in the church, and and he has this sort of paradoxical, uh, in, you know, in some ways confusing understanding of losing yourself completely uh, and emptying yourself. It, it it almost like when you read it now, it it almost sounds Buddhist or contemporary Buddhism, or yes, you know. So like, what, what was he? What do you think he was seeing in his time? Uh, that led him to to make the conclusions that he did about um, contemplation and self emptying and and that kind that kind of stuff. Does that well, make sense? Well, it does. Although I've never thought of it in that sense that he was seeing things that led him to say those things. I mean, I think of Eckhart as more of a. I mean, he was more of a philosopher. He was a philosopher who who preached a lot of sermons. Those two things don't often go together well. Right. Um, and for him, it came together beautifully, actually, you yeah. know, uh, for those of us who appreciate him today, but in his own time, uh, it got him into trouble. Yeah. But when I say uh, he was more of a, of a philosopher than someone responding to his times, I guess I've always thought of it more in terms of he was looking at, uh, you know, sort of eternal truth. Yeah. Um, as opposed to trying to apply the scriptures to the present day. Right. I mean, I think he was almost ignoring the present day in a uh, way and looking to what he saw to be the truth and what he saw to be true uh, as a mystic, because he was obviously a profound mystic, but also as a philosopher, theologian, what he saw to be true were those themes that come out that really resonate for us in the 21st century, those themes of you know, a Christian talking about dispassion, 
mm-hmm. or talking about detachment. And mm-hmm. those are those those Buddhist ideas you're yeah. talking about. Because yeah. we usually think of those as Buddhist. But we can go we can point back to the 13th century Dominican and say those are actually straight from Meister Eckhart. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but that's kind of how I think about it. Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, even to because um, I think I, I just have such a um, I I assume that oh well he's he's saying these things he's preaching these things he's thinking these things because of what's happening in culture but but um, it's even more fascinating fascinating to me that maybe he wasn't and do you think that he was um, like I mean he was labeled a heretic he he died right before he uh, was convicted. Right. Uh, was he way, way ahead of his time? Uh, was he understood by anyone during that time? Uh, was he obscure? Uh, I mean, he's preaching to nuns, <laughs> you know, like to, what, what did people think about him? Uh, what did his contemporaries think about him? Well, he was, it's, it's tough to answer that because there's really a, there's whole periods of several years at a time when we don't know anything about what he was doing or where he was. Um, so there's a lot of sketchiness, but we do know that he was asked to come back to Paris a second time. So that says something about how right. highly regarded he was as a thinker. Yeah, And he held these positions of, of authority as a spiritual guide, uh, director, and, and preacher to these large uh, convents of Dominican nuns for many years. Yeah. So he must, he must have been popular among them, I would think. I mean, I, I like to imagine that these, you know, hundreds, thousands of women who were living a, a mostly cloistered life, you know, in the late Middle Ages, who were hearing his sermons, hearing this beautiful subtlety uh, of these ideas, you know, the fertility of God and, yeah, yeah. and uh, the detachment that contemplative prayer is all about, and that they were uh, eating it up, they were applying this to their lives, it was rich and important to them. And then they ended up being sort of the subject of the heretical suggestions about Eckhart toward the end of Eckhart's life. You know, how, how could he preach such sort of subtle things that are dangerous ideas for those who don't quite understand the subtlety properly? <laughs> but I, th- I I like to imagine that the nuns understood it just fine. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this this was a time when I think the sacred was being drained away from, uh, you know, church and crown. Yeah. And, and he was a part of filtering it down to uh, a level at which, uh, where it's supposed to be. You know, yeah. it's not supposed to be in church and crown, really. Right. And, but it, it got him into trouble. Yeah. Uh, okay, do you mind if I read a poem or two that, that, you, uh, that you have oh, written? Yeah. And, then, yeah, uh, and then maybe you can take that and sort of extrapolate out Okay, here's here's the here's the teaching that 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 we got this from via Eckhart, and so um, and again, what for those of you who are listening, this this book is just this beautiful collection of poetry. But Eckhart was not a poet, but they they took his teachings and made them into these uh, Rumi esque poems that I find so beautiful and fascinating. So here's one. It's called "We Must Abandon God." One person said they had God, while another lamented God's absence. I say this, we must abandon the God we have in our thinking and believing for God's sake, so that we might come to know God as God truly is, who never left us beyond knowing in a single oneness and pure union. 
So riff on that. Like I love, I mean, when I read mm-hmm. that for the first time, I, I think I read it five times in a row and just, yes, yes, yes. Well, it, it comes from one of his sermons as most of these do. And what we did was we took usually a paragraph of prose from a sermon. Sometimes it was a couple of paragraphs where we were taking a line here, a line here, a line here. And then throughout, we, what we say in the introduction to the book is that we have revoiced. Because it's hard to explain what we've done, really. I mean, we, yeah. we, these are Eckhart's words, but they are revoiced yeah. in, in a 21st century idiom somewhat, but not exclusively. There are some places where exact phrases are coming exactly as one would faithfully translate from the German. These are usually from German sermons. Yeah. And Eckhart was intent. This is also goes back to what got him into trouble. He was intent on his sermons being delivered often in German. And sometimes he would translate them into German. And sometimes when he was defending something that he had taught in Latin, he would then translate it into German because he wanted ordinary <laughs> people to get it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So anyway, so I'm, this, this comes from his teachings of, of who God is and who God isn't and how we are to relate to this. I mean, I always think of it as this fertile, this fertile God. I mean, for Eckhart, the most powerful thing that comes again and again, I think, is God's fertility, which means it's from love that God created in the first place. Mm. It's like an, over, an overpouring of God's being that, cre- that creates and that began everything that we know as our human life and existence. And then it's the same kind of love, the same kind of overpouring that the sun came. And then it's that same overpouring that the sun is then born in us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are ideas, these are ideas that are dangerous in the sense that, you know, they're outside the life of the sacraments. They're kind of outside the life of the church. And that makes those in the church nervous. Yep. Um, but there's nothing heretical about them. Right. And there's nothing that's not faithful to Scripture. I mean, I think, but with Eckhart, there's no materialism. So when Eckhart talks about, you know, the created world, he's not, you know, Henry David Thoreau, who's, who's seen perhaps God as he walks in the woods. There's an ordinariness of the sacred, but it's the sort of extraordinary, inscrutable me that he's constantly pointing to. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's in that me, it's just in that me where God meets me, and I have to strip away everything on the outside and meet God there. And of course, all of that is, in, is impossible to sort of comprehend. But like you said, you want to keep reading it and keep yeah. meditating on it and trying to sort of find a way to absorb the, that kind of truth and understanding. There's something that tells us that that's right. Yes. And I think it's, I love how you said that there's something, there's some intuitive sense that when we know something is right. And for me, this is just my own internal true north. When it feels like it, it can keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, then that, Mm -hmm. that feels true to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And though, uh, Eckhart points to the expand, the ever expanding knowledge of God that is both ever expanding and anchored, you know, and sort of deep within, sort of deep, yep. like to be found uh, right there in this thin place that is me. Um, and I think yep. that's some, like, the, um, some of the dualism, I think, of our, you know, we're still sort of, sti- I mean, 
all these years later, we're, we still have sort of a Greek understanding of Christianity. Most of us do, Protestants anyway. And I think Eckhart calls us back to this, this, um, this, this non-dual um, indwelling, this, this indwelling of, of God within you and me. So is, is it in, incarnational, or is, is that not quite the right descriptor for that? Well, I think Eckhart would certainly say it's incarnational. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's there, there's no question that that he he took such a profound understanding of the incarnation. His his understanding usually turns to the philosophical, but there is that deep incarnational sense that you know he has that famous sermon delivered on Christmas Day, you know, that says that the meaning of the nativity is that God is born in us. Yeah. So it's a it's a deep application of what the incarnation is all about. Yeah, which I I mean. Maybe this is a question. Do you think many of us miss that? Like we see, oh, Jesus oh, yeah. is born in the world. It's Advent, uh, and and but but that's very much back then, or or or, or maybe you know in the, in the the second coming, way out there. But it's not right here, right now. Uh, the Christ indwelling us. Well, I, I do, and this is one of the ways in which I think Eckhart. I wouldn't say that Eckhart was ahead of his time because I wouldn't want to presume his intention, but I sure. would say that one of the reasons why Eckhart resonates so strongly for so many of us in the 21st century, and I don't know if this was something that resonated, you know, in the 13th century, yeah. is that so many of us have trouble with the atonement. Yes. You know, traditional understandings of the atonement, and we don't need to get into all those distinctions, but I think your your listeners probably understand difficulties with the atonement in ways that even just a generation or two before us uh, took for granted. And I think that Eckhart, the kind of teachings that we're talking about, certainly the poem that you read, emphasizes that creation and redemption uh, are not compulsory on God in the sense that these traditional understandings of atonement are all about, this compulsory right you know, uh, role, uh, responsibility for creation and redemption that, you know, instead they are expressions of God's creativity, God's, you know, fecundity, God's yeah. love. Yeah. yeah. And that's so much more appealing. Yes. I think for so many of us. And it's, it sort of rings true in that, in that sort of contemplative sense in which, uh, many of us, uh, you know, who, uh, feel that we are in relationship with with God, um, understand God to be. Well, I wonder too, I mean, I think of, you know, one of the problems with the outcome of the Reformation all these hundreds of years later, especially when we have to, well, is, is that there's such a poor anthropology, right? Like we are, we start with we're terrible, we start with we're sinners, and God is glorious and majestic, and sort of the bigger and better God gets, the, the worse and worse we have to be, sort of. Right. Um, right. And I think that that fuels some of those um, compulsory atonement theories. Yes. Um, but, 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 okay, so let me, let me read another one of these poems, okay. because it's just, okay. I mean, um, so th this would be, uh, an example of the the fertility or, or the God creates out of love um, instead of compulsion. This one's called Becoming Love Too. When I learn to love you simply because you are love, I come to accept myself simply 
because you made me in love and you never stop making me. And when I hold on to this and let go of every doubt, I find your love in everything. And I become love in you and you become love in me. And like, I mean, again, (laughs) you guys, this book is full of that. Uh, talk about where that came from. Well, I mean, you already did, but, but maybe riff some more on, on that idea. Well, I mean, they all come from the same place. These, yeah. these glorious German sermons. And I mean, you mentioned the reformation when I was talking, uh, you know, the sort of brief history of Eckhart. One of the things I could have mentioned was that there is a little connection, an interesting historical connection in Erfurt, Germany, uh, which is that, uh, Eckhart was born and raised right near Erfurt, Germany. And he became the prior of the Dominican community in Erfurt, Germany. But Erfurt, as those who have studied Martin Luther know, is also essential to Luther. I mean, Erfurt is where he mm-hmm. went to school and where he got caught in that big thunderstorm and, yeah. and prayed to St. Anne to save his life. And, and if you save my life, I'll become a monk. You know? yes. uh, so, I mean, that's, there's an interesting connection. And there, I think there's ways in which you can look at these two German figures who were geographically very close, uh, but yet... Uh, diverged in many ways, but yes, no. I mean, you're you're picking some lovely ones. I mean, I th- there are some that I love too. I mean, can I read one of the ones? That yes, I love? please do. So, th- th- this one expresses a, a a little bit of the the response to the world. Um, there's this uh, ascetic quality in Eckhart. I mean, I think that there's a deep ascetic quality in any Christian mystic, um, but. As you also see in the ones that you're reading, there's also this uh, this uh, love of yeah. all things kind of approach to Eckhart. It's just that he there is kind of a dividing line, sort of a sort of a love generally of of, of the created world and of, and of uh, in, in any in every respect that gratitude demands, but yet not a love of the particulars. So anyway, yeah. I like this one. When you go outside, be careful not to lose sight of the one to whom you inwardly turn, that feeling you have in your cell or in church, take it with you. It will protect you from the restlessness. Oh. I mean, to me, I, I thought of that one this morning. In fact, yeah. posted that one, I think on Facebook yeah. this morning, because yeah. that's the one that I was reading because on a beautiful day like this, uh, I want to go out and, sort of revel in the restlessness and of yeah. course there's all there's 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 christian traditions for all of these things sure. you know right so so I, I i could be well justified in doing that but for me uh, uh focusing uh keeping focused on that constant inward turn yeah. even when i'm loving the sunshine is an important sort of ascetic compliment well i'm glad you brought that up too because i mean i think i i uh not knowing really all that much about Eckhart yet, I when I be, when I just started seeing him more and more quoted by all these people that I love, I, I started going, okay, well, like how how will I start getting to know Eckhart, right? And so I looked at all these different books, and 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 yours was the one that I finally landed on because I thought I don't want to get lost in um, you know, some of the complexity of of his thought because. His writing can be complex, um, and his thinking is complex. Yes. yes, but I think I wouldn't have picked up on the on the ascetic, um, or I haven't picked up on that yet. Um, and I think it's a good, even that is a good, for me, a good counterbalance to this 
ever-expanding love that is out there. I mean, you know, not even counterbalance, but just a turning inward, as you said. Right, right. Um, oh, gosh. Okay. Um, well, the, let me tell you about how these poems came to be. Yeah, please. So years ago, 20 years ago, 20, I mean, as you might know, I, I, I've worked in publishing for a long time. So in addition to writing, I, I do a lot of, I'm an editor and a, and a publisher, and I've worked for several different publishers. And 25 years ago or so, I was uh, publishing Daniel Ladinsky. And I'm not sure if that's a name that people still know today, but Daniel Ladinsky was doing beautiful translations of Hafiz. Yeah. <clears throat> which became bestsellers in Penguin paperbacks and things yep. and are still very much read and appreciated. And it was at that same time, you know, that Coleman Barks and others uh, were doing these beautiful Rumi. translations of Rumi. You yeah. mentioned Rumi. Yeah. And so for many years, I had this thought that uh, so much of what you might read in a Hafiz poem or a Rumi poem resonates with Christian mystical traditions and I, and I always thought that if it were ever to be a, a, a Christian mystic who could, you know, be that person, it would be Meister Eckhart. Yeah. And it was in conversations with my co-author, Mark Burroughs, who's a, uh, a theologian and a poet and a, and a fluent German speaker and translator, that we started to talk about how we could take, you know, these nuggets of what's in Eckhart and, pre and present it in a way that resonates with those, those of us, many of many who are Christians who look to things like Rumi and Hafiz, you know, we have that treasure in our own tradition. Yeah. And that was, that was exactly where it came from was sort of a desire to return to our own tradition to find these, these nuggets. How long did it take you? I think we spent about a year creating Meister Eckhart's book of the heart. And then there is another book coming in October which is called Meister Eckhart's Book of Secrets. Oh. And it's, it's essentially more of the same. I mean, the themes change a little bit. The themes in the second book are um, seeking light, facing darkness, yeah. risking love, knowing nothing, and embracing everything. So, but- Could you, could you repeat those again? Sure. Uh, seeking light, facing darkness, Risking love, which is a big one, um, knowing nothing and embracing everything. Oh. I mean, just knowing nothing and embracing everything. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, tr try, try and go home and accomplish that one, right? But I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I love that actually. Like that. Oh, um, it, but exactly. Like, how would you? Well, that's the point, right? I mean, how would you ever? How would you ever plumb the depths of that? How would you ever get that done? Check that off. Right. You can't. Um, but I, I, I actually think it's one where uh, to use a Christian word, I think virtue, yeah. virtue comes into play. I mean, I think, uh, it, you know, we have to have courage to be able to know nothing and embrace everything. That is really tough to be willing to try. And I think there are moments when I'm willing to try, but I'm usually not because I'm not willing to let go, mm -hmm. which is one of the themes of the first book letting yeah. go. Oh, for sure. I'm, I'm not willing to let go. I mean, I mean, I mean, letting go of, of what my identity is, letting, letting go of what I, you know, what I think people think of me and letting go of my reputation, letting go, of, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's like the, 
it's like the stories, you know, the, the, the Zen master who teaches, teaches his students for years to, to let go uh, and, and, and let everything fade away so that they can, you know, reach enlightenment. And they, they, they say that they're doing this and they study the texts and they say the prayers and they, you know, they, they do their sitting meditation. And then finally, he realizes that there's no one to whom he can pass the lineage on to. Mm -hmm. And so he picks the person who he thinks probably is the closest and he destroys his reputation. You know, he, he, he puts a he puts a rumor out there that he's done something terrible that he's. And so the, this student is disgraced and he's humiliated. And and finally, then selflessness comes because basically it's taken away from him. And then the Zen master says, OK, now you can now, now you're ready. Now, now you're ready to take over. I can retire, yes. you know. But I mean, how many of us are actually willing to, to truly let go? It's language that we use so easily, you know, but I think I think this is where actually virtue comes into play and we have to exercise courage. Oh, man, I, I agree. And even as you were talking, I thought you, know, you mentioned sort of we get so lost in the atonement theories, but essentially isn't that what the cross is, is this this pattern that we do that we attempt at any way? um to let go of that which fortifies us that that is not actually the eternal um like yeah. to me that that is what i see is the pattern of the of the of the cruciform life um and it's not um there's an asceticism to that or there can be that that gets legalistic or something and that's not what i'm talking about but it's almost like when you realize yeah. over and over again i i yeah, I, I, I indulged in, in that uh, one too many times, and it's just not, uh, it, it's actually draining something from me instead of giving something to me. Yep. And so, um, yeah. Um, okay, can I ask you just a couple more questions, John? Are you good for yeah. a few yeah. more minutes? Yeah. It does seem like Meister Eckhart has has gotten popularity is not the right word, but, but he's gotten some acclaim over the last few years, hundred years, maybe. Why do you think that is? Why, why has, why is he um, appealing these days to some? Well, I think that the hundred years is probably a good marker. 150 years, maybe. Mm. I think Christians have been anxious to, to locate their mystical tradition. Yes. Uh, and I think it's only really 150 years that we have felt uh, entitled and um, ready mm. to reclaim it, to find it. Yeah. Um, because these are the risky thinkers, you know, from the past, according to those who have been in charge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who really respects the magisterium. You know yeah. I mean? But at the same time, we have to acknowledge the role that power plays in these things. So, um, but if the heart of the, if the heart of religion is the believer's experience of the divine, uh, which is what really comes through in Eckhart. Yeah. Um, then that's dangerous. That's, that's dangerous, you know, to, to the sort of power structures of, of faith. And, and, and I don't just mean, you know, archbishops and that sort of thing. I mean, all across yeah. the board. So I think, I think that the 150 years or so is when we have really felt hungry to find the tradition of, of mystical teaching and spiritual understanding 
that comes outside of the walls of church and outside of the role of the life of sacraments. I think it's well said. I think I, I, I resonate with that. And I, you know, I know why, why the power, the religious powers get nervous about that because all of a sudden then you don't, then you don't need them, you know, or, or exactly. us, me. Um, that makes sense. And um, if we can not see it as either, or, you know, if we can see it as, as a sort of one, um, feeds into the other, then I think we would be, we would be rich, uh, right. in all the, in all the great ways, but maybe, maybe there, maybe we can't, I, maybe like it only, only a certain enlightened state of being, um, uh, enables you to do, to, do to, to appreciate both. It seems like you're one or the other. I, 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 and maybe that gets back to what you were talking about right at the very beginning. Um, well, well, the, let me offer this, that I mean, one of the things I like about Eckhart, and one of the things I often feel that Christians don't quite get about what a heretic is, yeah. is that to be a heretic, historically, you know, in the church, is to essentially come to a point where you refuse to accept any other, any other authority. Yeah. Um, to come to a point where you say, well, what I wrote or what I said is true, no matter whether it contradicts what you have to say or not. I mean, that, that's that's where you become a heretic. And I'm not now going to just, you know, to make a statement about, you know, good or bad, um, yep, yep. Particular, you know, issues. But Eckhart, when he faced his own bits of trials about heresy, he would get up and say, here's what I said. Here's a translation in Germany. I mean, in German. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, if, and if you find anything in here that is contrary to the teaching of the church or contrary to the gospel, then I take it back. <laughs> oh, Wow. Uh, and I like that, yeah, uh, because yeah. that was that was one of his ways, I think, of letting go. Yeah, I mean, it's one of his ways of saying, okay, I'm not, I'm not claiming, yeah, you know, some sort of divine revelation. I'm not claiming to have the the answers to all of this. I probably said it in a language that doesn't quite fit the categories of what you're comparing it to. If you find it, you know, to this or to that or whatever, yeah. okay, yeah. well then forgive me. You know, oh, there man. must be some mistake here. Yeah. <laughs> So I think in that sense, that uh, that is part of why the church never really could have condemned yeah. him as a heretic. And and he, as you said, he died without yeah. any sort of judgment upon him. And then since then, popes and you know yeah. Catholic theologians have said Eckhart Eckhart was on the good side. Yeah. But 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 anyway, I, I think that is one way of sort of walking those two mm-hmm. sides is to is mm-hmm. to have the not just sort of the intellectual honesty, but uh, the humility yeah. and the ability to let go of your own, you know, grandiosity, perhaps, or yes. your own your own concepts and ideas, and, and say, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Oh, I really like that. Um, I mean, I, I hate that on one level because you're right, <laughs> but I think it's so well said. I think it's, and I didn't know that about him. That's that's fascinating. Um, well, I'm going to put you on the spot. Is, is there one last uh, poem that you could read to to end the podcast? Well, you know, I actually, so in the book that comes in October, yeah. my story cards, Book of Secrets, that last category uh, is uh, embracing everything. And yeah. I mentioned that um, that I think it takes courage to be able to know nothing and embrace everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that I never accomplish it at all. Yeah. So, so that's one thing. The second thing is that in Eckhart, um, you very rarely find references to physical things. Mm. 
So uh, when Mark and I were creating these poems, and, and, and we actually don't say who wrote which one, and yeah. one of the things that we kind of enjoy about our friendship and our relationship in doing this book is we often don't even remember who wrote which ah. one, which is kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I have one of them from that last section of the, of the book that's coming in October in the category of embracing everything. And I like this one for those two reasons, because I think it points kind of subtle, subtly to how to do it or what it means. And also it takes a specific physical thing, which is really uncommon in Eckhart. So, I mean, he very rarely talks about flowers and birds and, you know, uh, uh, conversations with people. It's always uh, more philosophical language, but this is one that I like. Okay. So uh, uh, the title is Horse in the Meadow. Have you seen how a horse on a summer's afternoon in a wide green meadow gallops and dances and springs about in the sun and wind? This is just how God delights in pouring himself into you, just like this. So what I love about that, it's in the, it's in the section of embracing everything, is that yeah. I think it takes courage to allow God to do that. Yes. Uh, I think I don't usually let God do that, but... And it also has the emotion and the feeling of if you ever did actually let God do what God wants to do in you, imagine yeah. what the, I mean, and, and that, that must be what heaven is, right? Yeah. Oh man. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thanks for ending with that. Um, that is beautiful. Well, I didn't know about the upcoming, uh, the book of secrets. I cannot wait for that. Um, so thanks for giving us that hint. Uh, you guys have been talking to John Sweeney. Uh, he and Mark Burroughs wrote this beautiful book, Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart, Meditations for the Restless Soul. I'm going to put a link to it on the show notes. Uh, I would say, you know, if you like Hafiz, if you like Rumi, uh, you're going to love this. And as, as uh, John said, uh, we have someone in our own tradition who thought that, thought that way and, 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 and wrote in that same spirit. So... Uh, and that's Meister Eckhart. So, John, thanks so much for uh, spending some time talking. I, I'm very energized to uh, to learn more about you and, and, and about Meister Eckhart. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I'm. It's a lot of fun to be here, and you know, this is this is this is the good stuff to talk about. It's fun. It's fun. Uh, okay, my friend. Well, uh, may your spring be as glorious as you hope it will be out there in Milwaukee. And uh, I hope it's the same for us here in Minneapolis. Thanks. Thanks Peace. very much. All right. See ya. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.